This is the future. And humanity is all but extinct. First they start skipping prescribed drug dosages. Then they begin touching. I volunteer as tribute! You can stop this. You can change things. I know that there's something more. Then we've only got one choice. We fight. Fight the future with Dan and Paul. Welcome to Fight the Future with Dan and Paul. And I'm Dan. I'm Paul. And we have a special guest today, our very first guest, so that makes him extra special. Woohoo! This is Dylan. Hello. <laughs> so I'm really pleased to have Dylan on the podcast because uh, we used to work together and we, we shared a, a small windowless room for a number of years. <laughs> and uh, he was passionate about this story. And that's basically the only criteria for being a guest mm. is to be into it. Yeah, this was, uh, I have some really positive memories uh, about this book series as a kid. Um, it's one of the first science fiction story sets of books I ever read as a young person and uh, shared them with my parents and I was very excited to get a chance to check them out again for this. And we both read them as kids too, right, Paul? Yeah, yeah. It's one of those ones that uh, I don't totally remember reading, but then when I reread it now, uh, it definitely, seen, certain scenes really uh, were embedded deeply in my consciousness. I was like, mm. oh, that's where that's from? Yeah. <laughs> like, this is where that's right. from? I remember this that. That's where those nightmares came from. Yeah. <laughs> Why I hate all things with three legs. <laughs> I've noticed that. You just attack on sight when you see a stool or... Yeah. Especially if it's an actual tripod. Yeah, yeah. As a, as a filmmaker, it's a real problem for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's crippling, really. This is uh, the tripod saga we're talking about. So we're going to be talking today about the book, The White Mountains by John Christopher, which goes all the way back to 1967, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is by far our oldest book so far as well. Yeah, it's held up nicely. I, I was pleasantly surprised. So we've sometimes been a little bit jokey about our spoiler warnings, like, haha, spoiler warnings for this movie from 2012 that nobody liked. But I think, uh, you know, spoilers are something that I, I consider, I take pretty seriously, wouldn't you say, Dylan? Uh, yes, certainly so. So for this episode, we're going to talk about the White Mountains, and we're going to talk about When the Tripods Came, which was the prequel that was written later on. But uh, nothing beyond that. We're going to stick to stuff that you would know from reading those two books. And in a future episode, we're going to talk about the other two books of the series, The City of Golden Lead and The Pool of Fire. So if you haven't hit those yet, you're safe. All right. Uh, great. So in every episode, we talk about the plot a bit the story. We talk about plausibility and how scary the world is, how we do, and then a little bit about the hope for the future. So let's get right into talking about the story. The story. Like it's interesting from a story perspective because the entire thing is basically just this travel log almost, this journey mm. to the White Mountains. But it begins in, on a small scale in this village of Wharton. It's this kind of adorable twee, I don't know, it's it's not supposed to be medieval exactly, but definitely sort of rustic English countryside, you know, windmills and houses with, you know, cute smoking chimneys and little farms and things. And it's, it. there's quite a bit of just sort of, you know, talking about the day-to-day -day life and our hero, uh, Will, and it actually takes quite a while before there's this mention of tripods. And it isn't until 15 pages in or so, everything kind of takes this sinister turn that there's this, you know, capping day. And Yeah, so Will is 13 and his friend Jack is 14. And so it's his turn to be capped, which we don't know what that means just yet. So, but there's a big party um, in honor of Jack. Yeah, it's kind of a coming-of-age ritual. And it all seems very nice until the tripod arrives. It's like a domed capsule at the top with three big legs that come down. They're huge. 
they're, you know, towering above the largest building in this village, which is maybe two or three stories. It describes it as two or three times the size of our village church, which That's is it. a great image. Uh, so this tripod comes striding in and just sits up there. And Jack gets pulled up into it by a metal tentacle that comes down. Yeah, it just, you never actually see the capping. It just picks him up and he gets like, get put gets put into a compartment in the tripod and the tripod walks away. And then the next day it comes back and his head has been shaved and he has this cap, which is this sort of metal, woven metal mesh thing that is on his head. And his personality, while not being totally different, he's changed. Yeah, he seems different to Will. He's not um, the, the playmate he once was. Yeah. Around this time, he meets uh, a, a madman on the street named Ozymandias. Right. And so, so there's this thing where sometimes the cap doesn't take. Sometimes, uh, a little bit like Devil on My Back, actually. Uh, sometimes, for whatever reason, the mind sort of rejects the cap and people become what are called vagrants, which uh, are just, they just come kind of crazy wandering people. It happens frequently enough that they kind of have homes for these people in the, each village, right? That there's a network of support for them because society has to do something with these people who end up kind of broken by the capping in this way. Yeah, so Ozymandias seems pretty scary at first, but as soon as he gets to talk to Will one-on-one, -on -one, he's he's doing less of the crazy singing and poetry and Ophelia <laughs> madness stuff and starts to... Uh, talk to him seriously and they agreed to meet out in the woods in this sort of a den and it turns out that uh, Ozymandias is not actually capped he has like a fake cap on and he is actually free he is a free person mm -hmm. he sort of confirms this the truth behind the caps and that they're something that the the tripods are using to control people to make people kind of docile uh, and he encourages Will to run away and in fact gives him a compass and a map to this place called the White Mountains, which is apparently the only sort of bastion of free humanity left. So he this sets Will kind of on his journey, and I guess as he's heading out, his, is Henry his cousin? Yeah. Yep. Henry ends up deciding to tag along with Will. They're both they're both going to be capped next year, and they they're thinking like I'm not so into that. Yeah. They uh, they travel along for a while. Uh, they actually start getting along. Uh, despite the fact that Henry was sort of a bully to Will, they travel along and have various adventures of hiding from people and stealing food and all this kind of stuff until they get to the closest port town uh, where they've been told they can. there's somebody who is uh, sympathetic to their cause that will take them across uh, the ocean or take them across the water uh, to go yeah, this the next is, uh... leg of the journey. Captain Curtis? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so they get on board the ship uh, and are taken across to France, apparently. So they get into a sticky situation when they first arrive in France. It looks like they're about to be capped. But then they meet uh, Beanpole. Jean-Paul. Jean-Paul. Which is how they, yeah, how yeah. they hear, how they pronounce Jean-Paul. Really? Okay. Uh, and he's kind of a little Leonardo da Vinci type inventor. Um, he's inventing things that have already been invented in humanity's past, but have been forgotten, like eyeglasses. Mm. But he's their—he's their own age. That's important. That's to right. Stress. He's thirteen. Yeah. So they head out all the three of them together. So they—they they walk, and then they end up getting onto this kind of steam train contraption. Ultimately, is that right? They, uh, no, it's they... not. It's not a steam train. It's—it's uh, it's being pulled by. Uh, That's by horses. By horses. And, That's right. Uh, Beanpole keeps thinking about how there could be some sort of thing. Like a steam train. Uh. Uh, and the other guys keep making fun of him that he's like, oh, it's going to be powered by a kettle. That's smart. <laughs> <laughs> they get to this ruined city and have a lot more of that kind of thing of like being pulled, trying to seeing how there were inventions in the past and how all this has been forgotten. Yeah, this was one of my favorite parts of the book, that they kind of, uh, they stumble across all of this lost technology in a city that I think is supposed to be Paris. Probably, uh, yeah. They keep, they keep crossing bridges over and over again. Um, 
Sure. But they have an important moment here with one of these technological discoveries. They find um, in like a metro station, basically, like a box of grenades. And they're kind of goofing goofing around with them. And uh, I think Henry sort of very cavalierly pulls the pin out of one and it rolls away. At that point, they explode and they all die. (laughs) It's a short book. And scene. Can you imagine being a 13-year-old left uh, left unsupervised with a box, with a of, box grenades? of grenades? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then they're like, huh, well, that's the fun side of the apocalypse, right? Like, yeah. this kind of a moment. <laughs> it's like, well, we'll take these with us. Who knows when they could be useful. <laughs> I think that he shows a lot of self-control and not showing the Eiffel Tower in ruins yeah. in the background. Mm. They keep going through the French countryside, and they run into uh, basically a medieval castle. Yeah, but there's a count and a countess there. Yeah, Will um, Will gets sick. They basically have to kind of smuggle him into like a a shed where he's found by some local people and their dogs. And then it just happens that these this queen aristocracy type woman has a special enthusiasm for taking care of the the poor and the ill to whatever effect, uh, and she takes them back to this castle. And kind of nurses him back to health there. Where upon he meets da 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 dum her daughter. Oh no. Mm. The first female character in this book so far. That's right. Eloise, who takes part in his convalescence and nursing him back to health and they go on walks and so forth and Beanpole and Henry take off at this point, right? They go uh, on No, they're 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 there. There's this whole chunk of time where we don't actually know what Henry and Beanpole are up to because it's all uh, from his perspective, which is him lying in bed. At some point, um, he's in this position of being quite comfy there, and they're out on the road. They've, they've taken off now. Well, they find out that there's going to be another, uh, like that capping day is a universal thing, and there's going to be a capping day here in this uh, at this French um, castle. And so... And they they find out that before the capping day happens, there's going to be a big fair. And they figure that the distraction around the fair will be a good time to escape. We do see some of the, this tournament, right? Yeah, yeah. There's actually like a, a full-on night jousting tournament going on. Mm-hmm. You know, he's been spending all this time with the Duchess's daughter, Eloise, is it? I think, mm-hmm. yeah. And they've been getting very close. And he finds out to his shock that she's capped. As time goes on and he sort of starts hanging out with her more and more, the idea is brought up that maybe he would maybe he would actually stay in the castle, mm. you know, as almost the adopted son of the Duke and Duchess. He he starts thinking that maybe capping Gant wouldn't be that bad. But then at, at that point, he finds out that Eloise is actually going to be leaving and taken into the tripod city. Yeah, yeah. And that's this quite, this quite chilling thing where she goes, I'm going to be leaving and going to the tripod city. Isn't it great? <laughs> and he's like, oh, crap. <laughs> that's not a normal reaction. <laughs> I'm going to be leaving my entire family and everybody and living with these giant metal monsters. It's the best thing ever. <laughs> that sort of snaps him out of this. I mean, not only is he not going to be able to spend his time with uh, this girl, but he's also realizes how sinister the caps are. And sort of it snaps him out of this this idea that maybe he could actually stay here. Uh, and, uh, and if there's a cap, you can't tap. What's <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah, it's symbol just, crash. It's, it's on the sign on the wall in the white mountains. <laughs> <laughs> he realized that, yeah, he's got to go. And so the next day he, uh, steals a horse and, and rides it off. Yeah. So you may have noticed we're not mentioning the tripods that much because they're not that visible in this part of the book. Mm. No. They, During the tournament. They, yeah, they talk about that they're sort of in the background a little bit, but not really around. Yeah, there's one silently standing, creepily watching the tournament. Um, and then, yeah, there's one. It's still there in the middle of the night when he's leaving by horse. But it doesn't seem to be doing anything. So he's like, all right, everything's okay. And then as he's riding his horse away, 
it starts to move and it starts to chase him. And when the tripods are chasing you, they basically can catch you immediately. Like they're really fast and take enormous steps. So then he gets yanked up off the horse and into the tripod. And blacks out. Yeah. Next thing he remembers, he's uh, waking up near his friends. And he quickly checks himself and he says, no, no, I don't have the cap on. I can think. So they keep, the three of them keep heading out. Yeah. And so as they're traveling, they start seeing this try. I mean, they don't know if it's the same tripod or a different tripod, but they see a tripod that just keeps standing off in the distance, no matter where they go. <laughs> it's always just kind of there. I had the image that it may be like trying to be stealthy and like, <laughs> like track them, <laughs> like standing, you know, trying to stand like behind a water tower or something, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. holding a tiny little tree in front of itself, <laughs> <laughs> crouching down behind a yeah. little rock. Um, so they figure out that he's actually got a tracking device, which I, I also figured out. Yeah, yeah. They, and so they have to cut it out and quite nasty little scene where they uh they cut it out with a knife but then as soon as they cut it out the tripod that has been following them goes like hey what the and starts running after them (laughs) and so they go and hide and at this point info goes hey i have those grenades that i uh, grabbed a while back uh and then the tripod reaches down and it grabs will in, and as it's sort of pulling him up into itself to try and to like cap him or whatever, uh, he throws the grenade into the hole that, that he was going to go into. There's a boom and the tripod just kind of stops. They killed it, apparently. And then at this point, the uh, tripods in the area go apeshit. And we mm-hmm. start to see these spotlights on the horizon everywhere as the tripods running everywhere. They quickly find this rock to hide under, and their night that is going to be very long begins. Yeah, they t- take advantage of the fact that the tripods are always looking down on everything by hiding under a rock. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> they got to have the tripods should have little sensors on their feet or something so they could get a ground view, like a mirror. <laughs> okay, so we'll stop right there with the story. Plausibility. So in this segment, we talk about how did this dystopia come about and how it maintains itself and other aspects of the plausibility. So Dylan has actually read When the Tripods Came, and so he's going to tell us about how we got to this point, that we are at at the beginning of the book, The White Mountains. Um, so When the Tripods Came is a prequel book. It was written almost uh, 20 or so years after the first white mountains book and it's written to kind of describe the way that the state of affairs that uh, will and the other boys begin in has sort of come about mostly it talks about the the first appearance of the tripods which in this book kind of crop up the world over almost overnight um in britain and in the united states and the soviet union and everybody kind of freaks out and these English children, Lawrence and Andy, uh, basically kind of stumble on one of these things while they are out camping. They see that it it kind of is this curious alien craft that's poking and prodding around in this farmhouse when all of a sudden a, a tank rumbles up and shoots at it and destroys it. Um, and they find out later that similar kinds of craft have turned up in the U.S. and also the Soviet Union, but... For the most part, these things don't move or really interact with anything, so the the, res- the initial response kind of dies down. In this period, this mysterious television show called The Trippy Show uh, turns up on TV, and it's this bizarre mix of kind of um, live action and cartoons, which begin by kind of poking fun at the, the tripod menace, but then end up kind of valorizing and making the tripods... Uh, a heroic figure oh yeah it's a strange it's a strange transition so the tripods like take over the the minds of humanity with just a a, a really good tv show 
uh, like a like you get the impression it's kind of like a hypnotoad thing. All glory to the hypnotoad. Basically, <laughs> it's like you know I I wasn't really big on the tripods, but man, their show is it has such compelling characters and the writing <laughs> is so deep and interesting. I, I love to get high on it and, and just watch the show. <laughs> it's I, you you get the sense too. It's kind of um, Lawrence. He has a sister who becomes really really plugged into the trippy show. Like constant Tumblr animated gifs, everything. Yeah, to the point that like, uh, you get the same response when it gets taken away, right? Which she gets kind of violent and angry and you know, throwing punches. Uh, it's like somebody unplugged the the Wi-Fi at home. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so, but they 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 get this doctor friend of theirs to come and you know basically be like oh, you think she's brainwashed or something weird is going on and. He kind of deprograms her a bit, and she reveals that uh, the show was basically, you know, a broadcast vector for sort of subliminal messaging about obeying the tripods and doing what they're told. And then, as they kind of get this information from his sister, you see that like crowds of these fans of the show, these trippies, are uh, causing civil unrest, sort of smashing windows and flipping cop cars and things. Like if Comic Con went really bad. Super bad. It just it just gets ugly, and it's clear that something sinister is going on. But people start disappearing from their community, um, who were these known trippies, and they decide basically they have to leave. And they the family takes their they take a boat out to this island where they have a cottage. But it turns out that the trippies have kind of already gotten there, and it seems like war is beginning to loom between people who are uh, under control. Uh, the tripods for this television show and people who still have their minds. They decide that they can't stay on this island, so they're going to take a plane to Switzerland. And they get to Switzerland to stay with their grandparents. But at this point, the capped, or the people who become capped ultimately, um, are massing in such numbers that they launch an attack on Switzerland. The the French and German trippies uh, turn up as like a giant army, basically. Like with weapons? Yeah, they're they're trying to impose martial law effectively. Huh. But there're no tripods in sight yet. No tripods in sight. There are still some, there are still a few who kind of uh, the the initial low-level tripod presence that is set up at the beginning of the book, those are still around, but they're just standing there. So that's interesting. So the 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 tripods themselves don't actually do any sort of any of the real fighting. No, they they let the the people who they've kind of in brainwashed or enslaved in this way do most of the manipulating. Okay, so when do the first caps come into play, or does that happen in the book? That happens in the book, at, right at the well. We're going to get there, but right at the end, um, you go from mind control through the trippy show to kind of like temporary pseudo caps to at the end of the story, you see the first permanent like hardware mesh caps. So what about any kind of regular violence? Like, do the tripods have missiles or do they have spaceships or anything? Um, they mostly end up fighting with their claws. Like, in the, the opening couple of sequences in the book, the tripod that the the two boys see on their camping trip, it fucks up a tank with one of their its metal talons, one of its uh, tentacles. So uh-huh. they're, they're obviously supposed to have huge physical strength, but they don't have kind of classic alien invader death ray type weapons. Hmm. So it's all by mind control. Basically. Does it say how many of them arrived or how, like, uh, what is the process of them arriving? It doesn't mention how they turn up. It's it's actually deliberately kind of kept very sudden that they hmm. they appear. And there's a small number of them. I think three of them are mentioned explicitly. But I presume more land after whatever network of broadcasting has been put in place to broadcast this uh, television program. Because it mm. seems unlikely that two, tri- two healthy standing tripods could uh, manage this kind of project on their own. You've got to hire actors <laughs> That's and right. animators. And, you know, all the licenses yeah, they have to do. Talking to the Korean animators is just like <laughs> such a pain in the ass. Yeah. <laughs> And like it comes back and it's the wrong color, you got to send it back. It's uh, it's really that's interesting. And in terms of you know plausibility, I can't imagine this sort of situation where these weird things kind of show up and there's this huge flurry of activity, but then the things don't do anything. Everyone just kind of 
becomes less interested in them over time. At a certain point, it's just like if it's just kind of sitting there like a lump and doesn't really seem to be doing anything, then it people sort of get on with their lives and don't really pay attention to it anymore. I mean, it kind of it 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 makes sense, uh, and it's interesting as a plausibility question that um, you know moving an army is in terms of resources and manpower and infrastructure probably the most taxing thing a civilization can do, right? Like it it requires a huge expenditure of energy to train people to fight and to move their shit and to be able to feed them and aliens that are crossing a galaxy, presumably, that would be a lot of work. And, and you know, landing with a giant invasion yeah. force is probably... We want to travel light. So exactly. control is the perfect solution. Yeah, they, they get a lot of... They got a lot of leverage out of uh, what seems like a very small, not discreet necessarily, but uh, low threat initial invasion force. Through their mastery of television. Their... their their mastery of the boob tube. <laughs> this is interesting because it's a little different from the explanation that Ozymandias gives for what happened. Or maybe it's compatible, but maybe he doesn't know the whole story. Uh, he says, when the tripods first came, or when they revolted, which is interesting, I never noticed that part of it, there were terrible happenings. Cities were destroyed like anthills, and millions on millions were killed or starved to death. Those that were left, the tripods capped, and once capped, they served the tripods and helped to kill or capture other men. So, so I think that the, this chronologically is uh, material that happens between the end of when the tripods came and the beginning right. of the White Mountains. So it's it's not a perfect mechanism. Not everybody watches the show, and it's clear that people can kind of be broken of the influence of this mind control mechanism. Right. So. I think I think when the destruction really begins is when people see that the the, the people who are under the sway of the tripods in this way um, are arming themselves and becoming an army of a kind. S somebody is bringing military grade hardware into the conflict that they see military like RAF planes flying overhead, um, but who they're going to be shooting at and who is piloting them is not clear. You know, I imagine people in the armed forces watch TV just as much as any of the rest of us, and some percentage of them probably fell under the spell as well. Okay, we need to round up everyone that has the Trippy Show on their Facebook fan page <laughs> right now, especially if they have access to nuclear codes. Yeah. <laughs> they just, like, say a couple of catchphrases from the show and see if they, people respond. The important send-up of this book is that it's, it's setting up the, the invasion of the tripods, although it's not necessarily what you might expect um but it's also the way that the white mountains resistance movement gets established that um, oh cool the white mountains is supposed to when i was a kid i thought it was the white mountains in the united states white mountains which shows you how close attention i was paying um but i think it's supposed to be in the alps and yeah um, it's the french alps that's right and which is it, kind of cool because i'm right by, by the italian alps here okay Awesome. I've climbed up in the Italian Alps, so I like that. Well, you you probably could imagine then how it might be difficult for a tripod to get up there. Because it seems as though the tripods can't fly, and they don't have any way of crossing the mountains, essentially. Yeah. And they've, and they've said that... And it also says that they don't like the... It's too cold for them. Like okay. That's part of the other reason why the White Mountains is relatively safe. Hmm. Well, let's talk about how this world maintains itself, then. How do they keep control? They talk about it, um, especially when they're at the uh, castle in France. Not only is capping considered to be a normal thing because everybody's capped, but it actually is like a, a desirable thing. It's sort of a mark of manhood. Like they are not that surprised by kids running away from home or whatever to be more independent. But everybody always sort of comes back to get capped because they're so they really want to get capped because that's how you become a knight or whatever or become a, a man yeah like little kids are not mind controlled at all they're just surrounded by mind controlled adults as it says about jack before he goes to get capped he was a man and tomorrow would do a man's work and get a man's pay yeah to, tomorrow after capping day they could call the caps a, like a necktie, you know, and this is kind of a, <laughs> <laughs> yeah kind of it's a very 1967 type of sentiment well, it's true, and and they they make the life of people who reject the caps deliberately look very, you know, they're kind of like 
the the drifter at the edge of town that your parents warn you not to go near because you know he could stab you or smuggle you away or something. Um, yeah, it's tied in with craziness and ostracism. Yeah, uh, if you don't have a cap or even if you don't have a functioning cap, you're outside and living this very rootless, not necessarily unpleasant, but kind of uh, empty and broken life. It's really woven very tightly into the fabric of these people's society. It's got to suck to be like one of the tripods whose job it is to go around doing all the capping. <laughs> it's like all the, other, all the other tripods get to like hang out. That's a shit detail. You know, do their, you know, hunt humans or whatever they want to do on their day off. <laughs> Zoom around like water bugs in the water or whatever. And then, but then some tripods like, uh, oh, they're playing the little horn or whatever. Ugh, gotta go pick up a stupid human. It takes fucking don't, two don't, hours don't, to put don't, a cap don't. on. Yeah. Yeah, I tried to put it on. Wait, no, I got it backwards. One sec. <laughs> uh, this one's too... Hey, does anybody have a, a medium size? This guy's got a weird shape this, hair. Yeah, this is the biggest head I've ever seen. <laughs> what in the world? I'm going to have to send special order for this guy. But yeah, I mean, it's clearly tied into this idea of conformity when you become an adult. that, And all of your society is organized around telling you this is the right thing to do that you have to give up your curiosity, your free thought, and join this working life, essentially. What's particularly interesting about the caps, though, is that they don't seem to actually exert that much influence yeah. most yeah. of the time. Unlike some scenarios, like human culture is somewhat recognizable. Like people yeah. are not zombies. They, they do a lot of normal things. But if they want to, the tripods can kind of flip a switch. Or they can, you know, affect large amounts of people. Or it's it's almost like a little uh, insurance policy that the tripods have. There's sort of a constant low level, just sort of yay, we like tripods effect. And then they they've also got a back door. But then they yeah, it, it's essentially they have like root access to your brain. Yeah. If they want to, they can mess around with stuff. But most of the time, it's not worth it. We should say you can't take these caps off. They're actually stuck into your skull. Right. Yeah. It's not just a hat. It's not just a hat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, people let their hair grow back over it and it becomes invisible, right? Like it's, it's people aren't walking around with their arms stretched out and all stiff-legged, you know, walking around like robots. They just go about their day and this capping kind of fades into the background of people's lives. So it's a retreat back to older ways of living for the most part. Yeah. The tripods don't seem to help them at all. Uh -uh. As far as giving them food or anything, but they let them live this old-fashioned lifestyle. Right. I guess they, the tripods want to make sure that their technology level doesn't get to the point where they're in any kind of danger. Like grenades. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it's not just that they're, they, they're not in direct danger from, you know, technological threats, but that they're isolated. That it's, you know, right. everybody kind of lives in these uh, rural communities that have very little interaction with one another. And so... Uh, there's no opportunity for people to compare notes about, you know, li capped life. There could be a magazine, Capped Living. <laughs> yeah, there's no there's no radio. It's not like the White Mountains can send out a pirate radio broadcast no. or right. something. So here's a question I had is, did the tripod say, hey, guys, you're going to learn how to mill again? <laughs> or did people just naturally kind of fall back into medieval or 19th century ways of living? Yeah, again, it's it's all of this material that comes in the gap between when the tripods came and the White Mountains. That it seems astonishing that a hundred years would be uh, enough time for civilization to collapse utterly, and then without the tripods' help, get back to the level of like water-powered grist mills and you know quaint English countrysides. Maybe uh, the hipsters will save us because they know about <laughs> they know how to can things, they know how to make bitters from raw ingredients. Um, Ozymandias says that there, you know, was a lot of starvation and stuff. So there could have been a large period of adaptation and the tripods were probably just as happy for the population to go down a fair amount from people just starving. The science fiction writer Brian Aldiss pointed out that this book was before uh, they knew about infrared vision. Huh. And so they actually need lights to find them at the end of the book. They actually have searchlights that go everywhere, whereas huh. now they could just pick up the heat signature. Right, right. That would be a typical thing that a, a robot monster would do. Right, but they didn't know about that in 1967. 
in the end, that end section, you know, after they destroy the tripod and they're all doing the search, it's interesting that the tripods don't call in a bunch of capped people to help with the search. Mm. Well, that's a good point. Yeah. I mean, I guess the idea is that they're quite far away from everyone. Right. But they could swarm them with hundreds of people combing the countryside in theory. But they don't. I guess maybe they don't want anybody to see a dead tripod. Scariness. It's an exciting book. I was talking with Daniel in, uh, sort of via email before we worked on the episode about how much of the fun of this read is the pleasure that a, a kid takes imaginatively in being places that they aren't supposed to be at night. That this is a travelogue of a kind and it's about kids kind of tramping through the wilderness and through the outskirts of these towns. You know, at, at, apart from the threat of capture by the tripods, uh, this sounds like a you know you have the option of leading a very pleasant kind of idyllic life in one of these small hamlets, and the cap will make you happy by force. It would seem, uh, or you break free and you you know you you try to get to this resistance movement, and it takes you on this wonderful cross country journey. the The tripods are a threat, but they're they're spread pretty thin. They themselves, I don't find all that scary. You don't find the tripods scary? Their, I mean, their their size is tremendous, right? But like, uh, there there are plenty of things about them that are kind of awkward. This is something that can literally be defeated by a sufficiently jagged, rocky, uneven surface that they can't walk on it. I don't think so. I think they're pretty nimble and terrifyingly fast. I I don't know. I'm my hackles are up. I'm like because I think <laughs> there's some scenes in this. Maybe this is my eight year old self talking, but do it. There's scenes in this that are scarier than in any dystopia we've covered so far. Like viscerally gut level scary. And the and that's a lot to do with these tripods, in my opinion. What would be quite terrifying is the sort of the alienness of the tripods and the arbitrariness of the tripods. They talk about tripods, you know, walking through an area and like smushing houses and people and stuff <laughs> just because they don't care. Right. Yeah, the tripods are, are unknowable and they're also major dicks. <laughs> yeah. They're going across the channel and three tripods show up scooting along the water like sort of water bugs and putting up huge wakes around them. And they come up and they, they basically buzz their boat. Like they, they go around it like three times and then zoom off. Going like, woo! <laughs> going off. And then they say like nobody knows why they do that. Sometimes they swamp boats and like knock them out over. Well, they think they might do it just for fun. And that's one of the scariest parts is that it suggests that tripods hunt people for fun, like fox hunting sometimes. Right, right. Like the only information we have about that is from Ozamendia's. Right. You're saying we might get the wrong idea about tripods. Like there yeah, some I'm some are dicks. We we why do we only hear about the crappy ones, you know? Yeah, we should give tripods equal time. <laughs> it's like that was an interesting point, but uh, check out this episode of the Trippy Show. <laughs> I've noticed a pattern in the people who are very pro tripod, which is that they're all wearing hats <laughs> indoors too. You know, they uh, they're just a stylish group of people. Yeah, fashion forward. They're trippies. wearing fedoras. Oh. <laughs> Large 10-gallon hats. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> so there's, a weird, there's a weird balance that gets struck in dystopias and in science fiction more generally where mind control exists, where the, the threat of mind control is really frightening to me. Like, But I acknowledge that as soon as I'm mind controlled, I'm not going to be frightened by it anymore. Like... Item one on the list right. of things to strike out of a person's yeah. brain is fear of being mind-controlled. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a very subtle horror, but it, it is a creepy one. Like, for example, Jack, after he's been capped, and there's a neat scene of him, like, completely failing to connect with his former best friend. Will is like, wasn't it scary or doesn't it feel weird? And it goes, he smiled. You can't understand now, but you will understand what happens. <laughs> it's... He shook his head. I can't describe it. So yeah. it's like, ooh. No, I think that this is sort of archetypally uh, a young adult book in this way. Uh, that like all of the things you guys have talked about in the series so far about anxieties, about young people have about where what their identity is going to be. You know, this is kind of like the classic college major question. And, you know, how am I going to fit into society? And 
what is that going to, what am I going to get from that? And what is it going to demand of me? And some, I think young people of about this age tend to feel a lot of anxiety and want to find a way to escape into something that's totally their own. Even if it's, you know, dirty resistance fighters living in the French Alps. <laughs> it's better, better than a tie, damn it. Eating cheese. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let me bring up another aspect, which is the, the threat of, um, uh, capping going wrong. Uh, okay. So, so one in 20 apparently produce a vagrant. Yeah. The theory that they have about what happens is that somehow you argue with the voices in your head telling you to conform or something, and that drives you crazy. In fact, when they arrive in France, it has an even greater threat for the boys, which is um, that when you get capped in a foreign country, uh, you become a vagrant automatically. Yes, that is frightening. <laughs> be- because, yeah, because the voices in your head will be in French. And you won't understand them. Yeah. And it says here, uh, not being able to understand them cripples you, maybe. Or maybe they just go on until either they get a response or break you, and you don't know how to respond the way they want. And for the first time, it seemed he was envisaging the lonely, mad life ahead. There would not even be Henry because vagrants wandered apart each cloaked in his own wild dreams and fancies. So, like, that's the fear of madness, really, of, of uh, you know, just being grabbed and then it, worse than death in a way, just completely mad. Just spending the rest of your life listening to a voice scream in your skull, Attendez les tripodes! <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> Wouldn't you pick it up eventually, maybe? <laughs> this, is, this is the next step for Rosetta Stone, you know. <laughs> Rosetta Stone for vagrants. That's right. No, that's that is that is frightening. Uh, and being I, mind controlled in French for complete dummies. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, yeah, it's scary. I'll, I'll give you that. That's all I wanted to hear. How would they do? In this segment, we think about different roles in this society and imagine ourselves into those roles and how would we do? I decided to imagine myself as Captain Curtis in this story mm-hmm. because you get to sail the ocean blue. He's the one who's not capped among his crewmates. Mm-hmm. It's a very dangerous job in a lot of ways. One teenage boy at a time or girl, you're helping to fuel the resistance. All of the English people who are headed to the resistance must go through him essentially through the on the orion Mm. to me that would be a worthwhile lifestyle and i think about his life i don't know maybe he'll get picked up by the tripods eventually but they don't seem to have a good way of monitoring him so i think he could keep going for quite a few years by the same token the ozymandias role would be kind of interesting i mean it's a more sort of i guess front line role so you're you're spending sort of part of your time basically pretending to be insane whenever you go near a town you're sort of all right time to you know come up with a bunch of weird song ideas or funny gibberish to say uh-huh. and get everybody on board the tough part is you you've got to sort of find children to basically convince to run away from home <laughs> to an uncertain future i mean not all the kids are going to make it it's a long journey yeah a lot of a lot of 13 year olds are going to die on the way and our our group only survived through several uh, lucky uh, uh, you know encounters with people who could help them out at the right time, and also pluckiness, resourcefulness. Anyway, yeah, yeah. I think I think the role of Ozymandia, like it would be it would be a tough job, but it's the most important thing you could be doing, really, recruiting new people to the cause, and not only recruiting people to the cause, but saving them, really. Yeah, I was going to say Ozymandias too, not to be too crass about it, but he kind of gets to take his one-man show on a backpacking tour of Europe. Uh, <laughs> like, he's staying yeah. in hostels, people take care of him. His his He has two jobs, one of which is to, you know, sniff out, uh, you know, play this sort of Morpheus role of finding people who have the psychological constitution on the basis of really nothing, it seems like, in the book. He just kind of like gets an intense look from Will and is like, that kid could probably... Well, Will talks about how he misses his friend who's been capped. Yeah, that's true. That's still a huge gamble to take on a 13-year-old, though, to be like, let me tell you this mind-shattering secret. 
Yeah, the yeah. natural reaction might be to go back and tell your parents. Exactly. Which right, would be yeah. what I would tell my children to do if a 35-year-old <laughs> tells them to meet them in the woods. Yeah, and then gives them a map and a compass. <laughs> tells them where. Set off for adventure. <laughs> go and meet a ship captain. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but no, I, I mean, like, that that's part of it. But in terms of the how we, we would do like i i think the prospect of getting capped i know myself well enough psychologically that i i would go i would i would be one of that five percent immediately not because i would <laughs> i would struggle hard and bravely against the mind control of the tripods but just because adding adding voices in there i don't i don't know how any how anybody gets through it like it seems like this incredibly invasive thing what if it's like real what if it's a good trip you know what if it's just like <laughs> you feel more chill than you ever have in your life <laughs> I mean, you're like any trip, you know. You're you're kind of rolling the dice on that one, unfortunately. <laughs> and I I feel reasonable. You got to get out in the nature, you know, like and just some good vibes. Yeah, some set set and scene, as they say. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the the set and scene in this case is inside a giant metal alien That's tripod true. walker. <laughs> inside a metal sphere. Yeah. Yeah. Hope for the future. When we last left our heroes, they're hiding under a rock while the tripods were scanning the area all around them. Right. So, I mean, the hope for the immediate future is they are able to hide from the tripods for long enough that the uh, the search moves on or they lose, you know, lose interest in the search and they can continue on their journey to the White Mountains. We get sort of a very, a very brief description of what the White Mountains are like, mm-hmm. what, the light, what life is like. It seems to be this sort of, an, it's like an abandoned mine or something that goes deep into the mountain and it, it sort of it, it ends in this sort of cautiously optimistic uh note i guess with the people uh, saying you know like it's tough like we're living in a mountain and we don't have you know the food and and you know all the sort of niceties of home and is tough like it, it's living rough and there isn't a lot and it, we you know have to struggle but we are free the flavor is uh, very much to me the end of the first Terminator movie where she's sitting on the bench writing the, mm. the letter and kind of there's a storm coming, but yeah. we have hope. Mm. And then, you know, oh, look, she's pregnant with the rebel leader. Uh, the right. fla- it felt very, the flavor of that felt very much the same. I, I, I do like that it's like the last sort of sentence or paragraph of the book where it says like, there's obviously, it's like there's something going on. Uh, our leaders haven't told us what's going on, probably because we're new and also we're 13. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> leaders probably don't share a lot of information with us. They've decided that we'll be the first wave. <laughs> we'll distract the tripods by being crushed under their feet, destabilize them. I'm a captain in the yeah. first kids buffer corps. <laughs> but it says we shall have a part. That is certain. Yeah, it's sort of it's cautiously optimistic but with the knowledge that it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. Is that the ending of Terminator 1? Indeed it is. Okay. (laughs) Nicely done. Children, school is over, but I have something to say I should like you to think about. It is surprising, but no accident, that many of our great celebrations... Capping Day, which we all enjoyed yesterday, and say September's Harvest Festival, stand so close together in our calendar. For nature and the tripods are the two essentials for the continuation and well-being of mankind. Nature's bounty clothes and feeds us, and by their benevolent presence the tripods have eliminated the evil and greed of war, and all war's death, diseases and despair. Consider the unthinkable barbarity of deliberately killing other human beings and how it must have been in the dark days before the tripods came. For centuries, aggression dominated man's activities, ruining his every endeavour, and in particular making impossible any true partnership with nature such as we now enjoy in our more enlightened times. We thank the tripods. We thank the tripods. (laughs) 
So that was the tripods part one, or what do we want to call this? The beginning of the tripod saga, something like that. Something snappy. The first two books chronologically of the tripod saga. That is not snappy. <laughs> <laughs> I'll work on it. The first leg. Act one. Oh, the first leg. That's good. Oh, um, the, the two legs. <laughs> Dear God. <laughs> Yeah, we're making a giant tripod across the earth <laughs> with our locations. I'm in Italy, and you're in Boston, yep. Dylan, and Paul's in Victoria. So that's pretty cool. So th thanks for listening, everybody, and thank you, Dylan, for coming on the podcast. No, this was so much fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and thanks, Paul. This is uh, a Loading Ready Run podcast, we'd like to remind you. Yeah. And next week, uh, we've got The Hunger Games. The big one. Which should be good, yeah. The, uh, this sort of the, the movie that kind of started this resurgence in the young adult dystopia movie trend. So that'll be super cool. And we have a special guest for that one as well, don't we? Should do. But yeah, this podcast, as with everything on Loading Ready Run, is supported by our Patreon at patreon.com slash loadingreadyrun. Our theme song is by Bradley Rains, and the interstitial segments are by Kiara Kant. If you enjoy this podcast, uh, please subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes, or you can give us feedback on our forum at loadingreadyrun.com forum. Yeah, we're getting some great feedback now, lots of great suggestions. I'd like to shout out to The Geek on Loading Ready Run forums, who's a fan of tripods as well. So I hope you enjoyed this and look forward to the next one. Do you want to take us out with the our signature sign-off, Dylan? No. <laughs> <laughs> May the odds ever be in your favor. That's 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 it, I think. Woohoo! Woo I did it. All right, which is good because the Hunger Games is next week, so Phew, finally, I have to learn it. Finally. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye bye. 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 Ci vediamo. <laughs> Perfect.